From Vermont Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. Hi, is this Bill? Yes. Hi, Bill. This is Elizabeth calling from Digger. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Elizabeth? I'm doing well. Um, Bill McKibben is an author and activist who's been speaking out about climate change since his first book, The End of Nature, brought him a national audience in 1989. It's hot and humid in Ripton today. What's it like? Where, Where are you? McKibben is also a Vermonter. Since 2001, he's lived in Ripton, a small town in the Green Mountains, about 10 miles from Middlebury College, where McKibben and a group of students founded 350.org in 2007. That's the environmental organization helping to organize this week's global climate strike. Our environmental reporter, Elizabeth Gribkoff, talked to McKibben about why he believes climate activism is worth pursuing and how climate change will keep impacting Vermonters if leaders don't take meaningful action. So you mentioned in the introduction to your book, Falter, which came out this year, that you wrote a book 30 years ago called The End of Nature. And I'm just wondering, you know, what's changed and what hasn't changed in those decades between those two books? Yeah. So The End of Nature, which actually came out in The New Yorker 30 years ago today, was the first book for a general audience about what we then called the greenhouse effect. Back then, we knew enough about it to know that trouble was coming. We knew that when you burned coal and gas and oil, you produced a lot of carbon dioxide, and we knew that the molecular structure of CO2 trapped heat that would otherwise radiate back out to space. So we we knew enough to be very scared, but not precisely how fast or how hard it was going to pinch. And the story of the intervening 30 years is that it pinched harder and faster than we thought. It turned out both that scientists are conservative by nature, they underestimate, and that the planet was more finely balanced than we thought. So the things that we thought would be happening in 2080 or 2140 or something are already well underway. The Arctic is melting at a rapid pace. The Antarctic is beginning to collapse. We're seeing the decimation of coral reefs, the hydrological cycle, the way that water moves around the planet is completely helter-skelter now. So what was then a series of warnings is now a kind of series of bulletins from the front lines of what feels more and more like a kind of war. And something that it seems to me has changed during that time period would be, you know, I think awareness of climate change and the climate movement has become a bit more mainstream, you know, but we still haven't seen meaningful action on climate change. And does that kind of match with your understanding? And how do we translate that momentum into action? So it's definitely astute. You know, for the first 15 years or so, till, I don't know, 2005 or so, there really was no climate movement. I think we were all convinced that we were in an argument and that as soon as the powers that be realized what the science was, as soon as the argument was settled, action would begin. But by 2005 or so, it was clear that we'd long since won the argument. The science was robust. The consensus was strong. And that made me at least conclude we weren't having an argument at all. We were having a fight. And the fight was about what fights are always about, money and power. 2006, some of us put together this march up the west side of Vermont from from Ripton here where I live up to Burlington. We took five days going up Route 7. We slept in farm fields at night. By the time we got to Burlington, there were a thousand people marching, which as you know, in Vermont's a goodly number of people. 
put the story in the free press the next day, and this was back when the free press was still a newspaper of sorts, said that that thousand people may have been the largest demonstration about climate change that had yet taken place in the United States. And when I read that, I really began to understand why we were losing. We had the superstructure, we had the policy, we had Al Gore, we had scientists. The only thing we lacked for a movement was the movement part. And so we set out to build that, beginning, truthfully, in kind of Addison County, where we put together 350.org with myself and seven undergraduates at Middlebury. And it quickly grew into the first sort of global scale climate action movement. Uh, we've organized about 20,000 demonstrations in 181 countries. And now there are lots and lots of other players in this movement. And it's reached a kind of critical mass where I think it's beginning to have serious effect on our political debate. Climate change for Democrats in this year's primary is either the number one or number two issue, depending on what polls you turn to. And among young Americans of all political parties, it's by a huge margin the most important issue. And so we're going to see political action now. The question is, will it be will it be enough? Because having waited as long as we've waited to do anything, we're now a mile behind the eight ball. Climate change isn't like other issues. It's a timed test. And so the longer you delay action, the more dramatic that action has to be just to meet the math of climate change. Right. And, you know, part of the reason we're doing this series now is because of the global climate strike that's happening in advance of the UN Climate Action Summit. And I'm wondering, yeah. you know, what do you think we can kind of expect out of that summit? Well, I think that the strike will be the biggest day of climate action in the planet's history. But I think there'll have to be more like it and bigger yet in the year or two ahead. I think that the UN Assembly will focus attention, but I think it'll be more rhetorical than anything else at this point. That's all right. Um, that rhetoric needs to be focused. People need to be on board. The biggest challenge for a movement is to change the zeitgeist, to change people's sense of what's normal and natural and obvious. And that's in the process of happening. People are understanding that we need to move quickly and dramatically. Hopefully we'll see that play out in our presidential election. Hopefully we'll see to play out in other elections around the world. You know, governments are one big power center. The other is the financial world. And we're beginning to see action there, too. The fossil fuel divestment movement is the biggest campaign of its kind in history now. Yesterday, we passed the $11 trillion mark in endowments and portfolios that have divested, not, I must say, the Vermont Pension Fund, which is... Uh, remains a source of sadness for me, uh, but huge funds from all around the world. And that's begun to put real pressure on, on industry. I mean, Shell Oil described it as a material risk to its business mm -hmm. this year. So there's pressure coming from many directions. We'll see where that pressure finally kind of breaks through in a big way. Yeah. And when we talked last spring during, actually during a climate march, you expressed I think some skepticism about how warranted Vermont's green reputation was now. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, what more do you think Vermont could be doing on the climate front? And why hasn't our state done more considering that there are a lot of people here who are and who are in office who are concerned about climate change? Well, I, mean, I, I confess I don't spend as much time as perhaps I should 
working on Vermont politics, I have to keep reminding myself, much as I love my state, that it's probably more important for me to be focused on India and China and Texas and wherever. But, you know, Vermont hasn't moved with enormous speed. And it's balked at doing even some of the easy things. Fossil fuel divestment from the pension state pension fund would be by far the easiest and most significant step. But, you know, the state treasurer has refused to ever do it for reasons I don't understand, since, among other things, it would save the state money and make the pension fund healthier. But I think that there are some, some good proposals out there. One of the things that really makes sense to me is to take the good work that Efficiency Vermont has done with electricity and extend it to transportation and thermal to heating because these are such big parts of uh, Vermont's carbon footprint. The, the last legislative session was obviously a disappointment on many, many fronts. Climate change may be the, the most important of them. I, I sure hope that the next session is uh, people are a little more uh, focused and productive. Mm-hmm. And I'm working on a story about how climate change is already impacting Vermont. And I know that that's something you've talked about and written about a bit. And I'm just wondering if you can sort of talk about as a Vermonter, how you've seen our state's climate change. Sure. So Vermont, I, Burlington, I, you know, among the national weather stations around the country, I think Burlington's warmed almost as much, maybe more than almost any other city in the country on average. And you can tell that because things that used to happen all the time, Lake Champlain freezing stem to stern, now happen rarely. Mm-hmm. We had a good winter last year, a real winter, which was for me a great happiness. Um, I love winter. And we may have the occasional one going forward because the peculiar the fact that the Arctic is melted tends to stall the jet stream. And if you happen to end up on the cold side of it, you can have real these polar vortexes. But in general, uh, winters are getting shorter. And one of the things, one of the ways you can really tell that is the dramatic spread of ticks uh, up and down the state. We don't no longer have the brutal sieges of cold enough to, to fend them off, the kind of classic winters. And so I think I read recently that Vermont in per capita terms now is the center of Lyme disease in the whole world. That's scary not only because you don't want anyone to get Lyme disease. It's scary because it changes the way that we think about the woods, I think. I think there's a lot of people who are kind of scared to have their kids walking around in the fields or the forest. And for a place like Vermont, above all, that's a a, a real, real sadness. And, of course, we see what happens when we get extreme weather. Hurricane Irene was the biggest rain Vermont's ever had. I think the places it came close to 11 inches of rain, um, that's the kind of rainfall you get when you warm the air because warm air holds more water vapor than cold. The U.S. as a whole just is getting steadily rainier. The last 12 months were the rainiest 12 months in American history. And often that comes in these kind of deluge downpours. Vermont, because of its geography, steep valleys with narrow valley floors is as we found out during Irene, peculiarly susceptible to a kind of violent and chaotic flooding. And let's hope we have a few more years before the next one comes. Yeah. So with all this evidence that you and others have laid out, how is it that people are still denying the science of climate change? Oh, well, that's, I'm afraid, an easy question to answer. Um, 
We now know from great investigative reporting by your colleagues at uh, the wonderful website Inside Climate News, by the Los Angeles Times, by the Columbia Journalism School, that beginning in the late 1980s, the fossil fuel industry, which, as it turns out, knew everything there was to know about climate change. Exxon scientists gave spot-on predictions for where the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere would go and how much it would warm, uh, uh, predictions that were believed by the executives who began building all the drilling rigs to compensate for the rise in sea level they knew was coming. We know now that in the late 1980s, all the oil majors and the coal industry and the utilities began spending a lot of money to build the kind of elaborate superstructure of denial and deceit and disinformation. They hired people who had worked for the tobacco industry earlier, and they pursued the same strategy, try to instill doubt. And you can tell how well it worked because we went from a Republican president, George H.W. Bush, in 1988, declaring that he would fight the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. We went, after 30 years of industry, expensive industry propaganda, we went to a Republican president, Donald Trump, declaring that climate change was a hoax manufactured by the Chinese. It's a pretty good illustration of what you get if you spend that much money and that much time over that many years, you can really poison the well. Now, the good news is the number of people who believe it are is relatively small and shrinking a little. But the bad news is that, the you know, the most of them are uh, climate deniers are probably never going to be convinced. You're not going to be some more study because the studies have all been saying the same thing forever. This is an ideological complaint. If you were literally convinced that markets solve all problems, which has been a, you know one of the things that some brands of conservatism have fixed on, if you believe markets solve all problems, and if it's clear markets are not solving climate change, then your reaction, the sort of syllogism in your mind might be, therefore, climate change is not a problem. <laughs> That's not a very logical supposition, but it's emotionally comforting, you know, if you've spent the last 30 years you know, deeply engaged with Rush Limbaugh or the Ethan Allen Institute or whoever it is, you know, what can I tell you? That That's just a fact of life in our country right now. It's endorsed, as I say, by our president. It holds power for the moment, but I doubt it will hold power forever because in the end, physics and chemistry um, tend to come out on top. And yeah, I guess just kind of in closing, after writing on this for at least 30 years, probably longer, are you feeling kind of more frustrated or optimistic about what lies ahead in terms of combating so, climate change? At a certain point, I had to decide not to spend a lot of time worrying about whether I was optimistic or pessimistic and just making sure I got up in the morning and did as much work as I could to, yeah. to try and change the odds in this wager because the stakes are so high that even changing the odds a little bit seems well worth it. That said, there are there are obviously reasons to be depressed. The science of climate change is very dark, and we see now the examples all around us. We're clearly not going to stop climate change short of the point where it causes huge damage. It already is. On the other hand, the engineers have done their job powerfully. The price of a solar panel or wind power has dropped 
90% over the last decade. Now storage batteries are on the same curve. So we have some of the technology to fix it that we need. Mm-hmm. And this movement has arisen. Um, I'm glad that some of it, some part of it came out of uh, the western edge of Vermont and Vermont as a whole. And my colleagues at places like 350 Vermont are, are very dear to me. And I'm even happier now that it's, you know, all over the world. You know, I was in New York this week to watch and talk with and be with Greta Thunberg as she arrived in the States from Sweden. And it was just just for me a, a wonderful shot of energy to see how many young people are stepping up. The fact that young people are doing this does not give old people a pass. Uh, <laughs> our job is to figure out all the ways we can to support those young people beginning with this all-ages climate strike on the 20th of September. Okay, thank you, Bill. Take care. Bye. You can find all of Elizabeth's reporting on climate change in Vermont at vtdigger.org. This week, we've been publishing a special series as part of Covering Climate Now, an initiative that involves over 250 news organizations focusing on climate journalism. You can learn more about it at coveringclimatenow.org. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Every Friday, we go deep on one key topic we've been following. You can find more episodes at vtdigger.org or search for The Deeper Dig and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We used music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from The Digger newsroom. Thanks for listening. <laughs>